Hey, it's Dan. Before we begin, I want to tell you about another podcast from Movie Maker. It's called Movie Maker Interviews, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Great interviews with people who make movies. Guests range from people like Charlie Kaufman and Werner Herzog to the newest up-and-coming indie filmmakers. If you love movies, you'll love this podcast. Movie Maker Interviews. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you got this podcast from. Now let's do the show. It's June 1983. Actor Christopher Reeve is making an appearance on Good Morning America. His latest movie, Superman 3, has just been released two weeks ago. And the interview begins with a clip from that picture with Reeve playing Superman, saving a small child. But as the interview begins, you realize he's not really there to promote Superman 3. He's actually there to talk up a play he's appearing in. From our ABC News Bureau in Boston. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning, John. I'm fine. Hi. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that Christopher Reeve was not the lead in the play. I was surprised to see that. Are you by the school of thought that there are no small roles, no, no small actors, only small roles? I don't even qualify as a small actor. I'm 6'4", but I get, I, get, <laughs> I get the drift. No, see, see, a place like Williamstown is where you can go. That's Joan London asking the questions. Then Reeve goes on to say something he would say a lot in 1983 that he was done playing Superman. Well, of course, look, Superman was a gigantic role. That's the understatement of the year. Yeah. And yet, I am told, you have hung up your cape for good. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, I'm sorry. Goodbye. <laughs> Why? See, Why that watch, decision? Well, did you watch that film clip? That kid yeah. looked real heavy, you know? I'm, <laughs> I'm getting oh, too old. I can't pick up children anymore. Uh, I think that I believe in a certain... Uh, honestly, in a certain kind of integrity of the material that as things get spun out into too many episodes, the quality in inevitably is going to go down. And I think that we've done three very diverse uh, uh, original films, and uh, we should sort of quit while we're ahead rather than flog it to death, you know? Yeah. And uh, the thing is, this news has come out as though I'm quitting now, which sounds slightly ungrateful, whereas this Superman part made my career. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be having these movies like Death Trap and the things I'm about to do wouldn't be possible without Superman. But my decision to, 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 uh, to leave Superman also was made in connection with the producers, with Richard Lester, with the writers. And we felt back in 1981, after we finished Superman 2, two this is a two-year-old news, that with Superman 3, we'd finish it. Superman the movie made Reeve an overnight star in late 1978. A slew of offers came his way and Reeve passed on a lot of them. William Hurt's role in Body Heat, Richard Gere's breakout role in American Gigolo, John Lithgow's Oscar-nominated role in The World According to Garp, and Mel Gibson's leading role in The Bounty were all offered to and rejected by Christopher Reeve. And that's just by the time we get to 1983. Instead, in between Superman movies, Reeve appeared in Somewhere in Time, Death Trap, and Monsignor. None of these lit up the box office. And Joan London seemed to take exception with that last one. You know, it, it seems like always your reviews are terrific, but some of the movies that you've chosen really don't seem to live up to your performance in them, like, like Monsignor. I mean, it came out with all this big publicity, everyone yeah. expected great things. What happened? Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, you know? And, uh, <laughs> as long as you can say that when you get up and go to work. No, seriously, Monsignor, I, I, uh, Monsignor made me as angry as it did much of the American public because it makes a statement about a Catholic priest. And I believe in fair play in my life and in my work. And I think that 
a movie that's going to make allegations about a priest and then doesn't go and prove it, that doesn't build its case, is really reprehensible. And uh, uh, it, that's, that's really what's too bad. I don't care the fact that it was a flop and didn't make money for 20th Century Fox. That doesn't bother me. It said it wasn't fair, you know? But that happened in the... And to be fair, Joan London had a point about his movie choices. Although it should be noted that Somewhere in Time did get a cult following eventually. But Reeves' next films wouldn't be hits either. The Bostonians from 1984 received praise from critics but quickly disappeared from theaters. The Aviator in 1985 was just a straight miss. That's when Superman came calling again. Except this time, it wasn't the Sawkinds on the phone. The Sawkinds, in case you don't know, were the father-son producing team that had made the three Superman films. Instead, it was the cousins, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus from Canon Films. And even though in that interview, he certainly seemed okay with Superman being in his past, the cousins had an offer that Reeve couldn't refuse. My name is Dan Delgado, and today we're taking a look at the deal he made that brought him back to the role that made him famous. The same deal that Canon Films thought would bring them up from the land of B-Pictures to be the next major studio. The deal that both sides would end up regretting in an episode that we're calling Christopher Reeves' Two-Picture Deal. Welcome to the industry, presented by Movie Maker. When it comes to Canon Films in the 1980s, you probably think about ninjas, breakdancers, explosions, Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson, or maybe just the word schlock. And that makes sense. That's what they made. On this podcast, I've gone over Canon several times now, but I want you to consider this. In the mid-1980s, Canon was looking to change their image. Yes, they were still the house of Chuck and Charles, but in an attempt to get some respectability in Hollywood, they started to work with an impressive list of filmmakers. John Cassavetes, John Frankenheimer, Robert Altman, and Jean-Luc Godard all made pictures with Canon, and all made their pictures without any interference. But beyond respectability, they wanted a blockbuster, something that would elevate them to the same status as the major studios in town. And in 1985, they thought they found what they were looking for. It was the 1985 Cannes Film Festival, and it was an annual event for the boys at Cannon. They'd go each year and make a splash by announcing a ton of movies which may or may not get made, and leave with new funding to make some of those movies. But on the final day of the Cannes Film Festival in 1985, they came up with something unexpected. Superman. As it turns out, Superman's producers, Alexander and Ilya Salkind, wanted out of the Man of Steel business. I think basically they were seeing, uh, you know, after the phenomenal success of the first one and the, and the great critical reception, a little bit less money for the second and quite a bit less money for the third, and they wanted money to go on to uh, other projects like there's, I think they were doing the Santa Claus movie around that time, and the Salkinds were always operating in debt. They had taken on so much debt to make those movies that each movie they made was paying back a little bit of the debt that they were always carrying a little forward. When the Golan and Globus come to them and say, hey, we'd like to you know, buy your Superman rights, which they didn't actually do. I think they just kind of licensed them from the Salkinds. But still, it was an influx of money for the Salkinds, and for Golan and Globus, it's acquiring a property that they hoped would help them be taken more as an A-list film company. 
This is Bruce Chevalli. He is a screenwriter, television producer, and the author of the book Superman on Film. So what was the deal with the Salkinds anyway? The Salkinds were, um, had a kind of shady reputation in Hollywood. And so did Golan and Globus. I mean, these are guys who, well, even as they're doing Superman 4, I think Golan and Globus had uh, gotten a 30-something million dollar budget that Warner's was underwriting. And then they immediately put some of that money into Masters of the Universe. So they're not spending it the way they're supposed to. You know, the Salkinds had kind of gotten into trouble for going into Superman, uh, you know, making two movies instead of one, and then, you know, it got to a point where they had to make some money, so they quickly finished Superman 1 by using what would have been the ending to two to end the film. And uh, I think they had held the, the uh, prints captive from Warners for a little while to get an extra payment. So, I mean, these guys basically, you know, the Salkinds and Globus is, you know, because Orham's old last name is Globus, they're all pirates, basically. They were these kind of freebooter pirates who made wonderful movies in some regards, but they were also a little shady with the money. The Salkinds were definitely really soured on the Superman franchise when their spin-off movie, Supergirl, proved to be a total dud in 1984. They decided to make a bloated Christmas movie with Dudley Moore, Santa Claus the Movie, and sold, or as Bruce put it, leased the rights to Superman to canon in order to fund it. And in case you're wondering, Santa Claus the Movie was not a hit. Now with the rights to Superman secure, canon looked to get Christopher Reeve back on board. And in order to get their man, they agreed to let Reeve write the story for Superman 4. But that's not all. And on top of that, he'd you know, come across the script Street Smart that he wanted to make and was having a hard time getting that placed anywhere. So when Golan and Globus come and say, we want to do a Superman movie and we will finance Street Smart if you do it, for him it was kind of a win-win. And going into it, Christopher Reeve was thinking that this would be his directorial debut. He was going to direct it as well as star in it. So let's recap this deal. Reeve gets to write and direct Superman 4 and gets to make any other picture he wants, within reason. Oh, and also he gets paid $4 million. The second movie was called Street Smart, and we'll get to it later on. But for now, let's focus on Superman 4. First, there's the script. Reeve was able to dictate what Superman 4 was going to be about. And Reeve definitely wanted it to be about something. A movie with a message. In 1985, Reeve had been narrating a documentary about kids interviewing authorities over nuclear weapons. The day he was doing his narration, the news broke that world peace activist Samantha Smith had died. Samantha Smith, we knew her as a bright young schoolgirl from Maine who gained international attention when she wrote Soviet President Yuri Andropov. She told him of her fears about war and he in turn invited her to Moscow and she went. Last night, 13-year-old Samantha, America's youngest goodwill ambassador, was killed in a plane crash, along with her father and six others. Reeve used this as inspiration for his Superman 4 story. He teamed up with the screenwriting team of Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal to develop the story, which the two screenwriters would then use as the basis for the script. In it, a young boy sends a letter to Superman asking him to do something about nuclear weapons. And so... Superman has to get rid of the, of nuclear weapons, uh, which has sort of become a threat to the world. This was during the sort of the Cold War, and um, Superman makes the decision to, you know, save the world by getting rid of these weapons. 
the sort of subplot of it all was that Gene Hackman's character Lex Luthor is going to profit from this and create a weapon to destroy Superman, which is Nuclear Man. Have you got that? Good. And this is Oliver Harper. Uh, my name is Oliver Harper. I produce retrospectives and reviews for YouTube. I've been doing it since 2011, so nearly nearly nine years of doing that. And recently directed the documentary In Search of the Last Action Heroes. So my career sort of juggling YouTube and documentary filmmaking. And one of the many things Oliver has produced for YouTube is a great documentary about Superman 4 called Superman 4, The Man of Steel and Glass. And now let's talk about this idea that Reeve would direct. It didn't last long. Reeve figured out quickly that directing and starring in a movie of this size would be a bit too much, so he backed off that idea. Though in the end, he did do some second unit directing on Superman 4. When it came to finding a director, requests were made to Richard Donner and Richard Lester, the guys who made the previous Superman movies, but both declined. Wes Craven, an interesting choice for sure, was in the mix for a while too. But ultimately, the job went to veteran director Sidney J. Fury. By the mid-1980s, Fury had been around the industry for years. He's the kind of guy who had made just about every genre of movie you can think of. And one thing I learned is Fury does not like to do interviews. So naturally, I did the next best thing to interviewing him. I talked to someone who had already interviewed him. My name is Daniel Kramer. I'm a filmmaker and a film historian, and I'm the author of the book, Sidney J. Fury, Life in Films. And Daniel, a filmmaker himself, was able to talk to Sidney J. Fury about all of his movies for a book about him that he wrote. And he's also a fan. He's a mensch. I mean, he's very, very uh, private. He's very you know, secretive in, in a way that I think a lot of directors... I mean, I, I've gotten to know a lot of uh, directors in my travails he admits to being very kind of holding his cards very close to the chest and just not, you know, not wanting to really answer to too much of, uh, of what he's done. And when I met him, we, we, it was really early in the morning. It was maybe like eight thirty in the morning or so. We immediately went out to breakfast for the first hour before we talked about any of that. He just wanted to know, get to know me and wanted to know about my family, wanted to know my background and, and everything else. So then, uh, then we kind of moved up to his hotel room and talking about his career, and we kind of began at the beginning. For Sidney J. Fury, doing a Superman movie was an opportunity to do something he hadn't done yet. Number one, he had written a script for a project called Marvel of the Haunted Castle, and this was uh, actually ready to go at Fox. They had a script by Lem Dobbs. Uh, they even had art made up for it. That was canceled for a number of reasons, and Sidney really wanted to do a film that was effects-driven because that was like a frontier that he hadn't explored, and that was becoming more and more the norm in the 80s, and Sid always wanted to stay kind of in the current. You know, I was like, oh, if I can't do that, I can do an effects movie in this, in this capacity. The script was to Reeves' liking, and the director was on board. Casting-wise... Mariel Hemingway was brought in as a new character, Lacey, which would set up a sort of love triangle with Lois Lane. There would be two nuclear men, the bad guys. First one would be played by Clive Mantle, who doesn't really work all that well. And a second, more formidable nuclear man would be played by Mark Pillow. Margot Kidder and Gene Hackman were returning to the series as well. In Superman 3, Kidder's role of Lois Lane was reduced to basically an extended cameo. 
and Hackman, as main bad guy Lex Luthor, was nowhere to be found. The reason for this may have been disputes Kidder had with the Sawkind that occurred while filming Superman 2. Kidder has said yes, that the Sawkinds basically punished her by reducing her role in Superman 3, though Ilya Sawkind has denied this. Here's Kidder on Late Night with David Letterman in 1986, just before she started shooting on Superman 4, not being shy about her feelings for the Sawkinds. In this clip, Letterman has a caller on the phone to ask Kidder questions. But, but don't you want to know about Superman 4? No, she's going to do no, another one. No, actually what happened was we have new producers. The last producers, I said, were beneath contempt as human beings, and so they yeah. cut me out of Superman 3. Yeah! <laughs> but we now have really wonderful new producers who want me back. Good. So now, will you pen, uh, pay 10 bucks to go see this new movie? No, but I'll watch it when it comes on TV. There you go. <laughs> At least she was optimistic about Golan and Globus over at Canon. The budget was set at $34 million, which would have made it the highest budgeted movie that Canon Films had made, and the lowest budgeted Superman movie. The first two were over $50 million, and the third was $39 million. Still, $34 million was likely enough to get the job done. Everything was ready to roll by 1986. And then, it all went wrong. First, there was that $34 million budget. It didn't stay at $34 million for very long what happened was that Canon had spread themselves too thin in the year of 86 greenlighting way too many films uh, most of them were just like just rubbish but they're most of them are kind of enjoyable rubbish and they had planned to shoot Superman 4 at Pinewood Studios and Pinewood had you know the, the team there the, the, the technicians had worked on the other films they set up shop there but very quickly because Canon had purchased L Street Studios where they'd made the Indiana Jones films and Star Wars films and they decided they're going to shoot it there which really pissed off the folk at, the folks at Pinewood Studios and Menachem and you know Urim, his partner said that oh, we can we can make Superman uh, L Street we've got the you know things in place to do it uh, so they started shooting there, and the budget was quickly cut from 34 to 17 million. So they could no longer shoot what they originally planned was to shoot some of these kind of sequences in New York, where Chris is walking down um, the streets to go towards the UN, and it's supposed to be this kind of big epic thing. And um, which what they ended up doing was with John Graysmark, the production designer, found a kind of new build town. So if you can't shoot in New York, but you need to use the United Nations in your movie. Where are you going to go? A place called Milton Keynes. It was designed to be like a an American city. It was got its boulevards. It's all kind of the, the way the town is laid out. It's like an American city. It's all glass buildings as well. And so it would be, in their eyes, a kind of a, to save money was to shoot that to sort of double as New York. And for additional kind of long shots and where you've got, because some of the buildings there are only like three or four stories high. They'd extend them with matte paintings. And that was the idea. But because of the budget restraints, they had to sort of, they couldn't achieve some of these kind of other shots they wanted to do. And what you've got is this this kind of weird, you know, it's it's, it's more British centric than the other Superman films because they didn't actually shoot all they shot for the Superman four in America or so let's say New York or the background plates. And like Oliver said, the UK stood in for the US for pretty much the entire picture. A great example is a subway scene that is very clearly filmed at a London underground station and not in New York City. Another example would be the UN scene. 
And it should be noted that Christopher Reeve was especially unhappy with this one. And, uh, you know, Christopher Reeve had complained about that, too, that, you know, he said if Richard Donner had been directing the scene where they walked to the U.N., there would have been, you know, lots of cars, lots of people, you know, huge crowds, and it would have been this sort of epic scene. And instead, it's like a 100 extras and a few cars, and he's walking across a plaza. You know? But Daniel Kramer doesn't agree with this. I think that's naive. I would say immediately, no, he wouldn't have, because when you have that huge of a budget cut, I think you're dreaming if you, if you think these kind of grand illusions or delusions that you had for a project that you have fostered are going to come to any kind of fruition, to any level of fidelity. So I think they did what he could. He did the best he could under those circumstances. We know the budget cuts led to some less than stellar locations. It also meant some less than stellar flying. Because they've changed how they do the flying, because in the other ones it was all front projection, kind of zoptic work. So they've shot the background plates knowing what Chris is going to be doing for the flying scenes. And this one, which is number four, is just all blue screen. So they just shoot Chris flying in different positions, going from left to right or towards camera or something very specific to a scene. But just put a, a different background onto the image. So, But what you have is no kind of on-set lighting to make it look like it matches the background. So yes, what well, I think that's kind of like 2D and flat and, you know, looking bit rubbish really in addition to less than stellar locations flying and effects the whole thing ends up looking well just kind of cheap well the comparison to the other ones was that number four was just shot so quickly you know i think they had literally a two-month shoot on it not many retakes um to try and get things in the can move on to the next shot when you look at the film and uh, it's kind of widescreen aspect ratio everything's kind of centered it's very kind of bland Say staging the setups of the cameras, um, very sort of flat photography, which is kind of surprising because it's photographed by Ernest Day, you know, who worked on Lawrence of Arabia, like a second unit guy, and he'd worked on Rambo 3. You know, he's a great cameraman, but Superman 4, as with him as the head lighting guy, it just looks so sort of washed out and um, just lacking any sort of sort of anything visually interesting. So because it's all Elstree, a lot of this sort of interior stuff is all on the different sound stages, so they jump from one sound stage to another to shoot these kind of sequences. So yeah, it's a very sort of slapdash kind of feel, and a gentleman I spoke to who worked on the film said it was like making a carry-on film, which is kind of those old British comedy films from the 60s and early 70s. So it just felt cheap. But it should be noted that there were good people in that crew working on it. Harrison Ellenshaw was in charge of effects and had previously done the effects for Tron and matte paintings for Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. You've got loads of great technicians on it, you know, who are just pros. Who, you know, the, the as I interviewed in my documentary, um, you know, the gentleman on there, he'd, you know, won an Oscar two years later for, for working on Batman. It's bizarre, really. But it's, um, yeah, it's just, you know, you've got great technicians working with little money. And you have to get through just things. That's what things happen. Things happen, have to happen quickly. You don't have the money to do a, a third, fifth shot or, you know, change things around and redo stuff. This all leads to what was apparently an unhappy set with a number of people at odds with each other. Reeve, along with screenwriters Connor and Rosenthal, really wanted to make their message film. But as it became clear, the movie was not going to turn out as intended. Director Sidney J. Fury thought maybe a different approach to the material could save it. A less serious approach. And he wasn't alone. Margot Kidder thought so, too. She's quoted in my book as saying, like, you know, uh, Sid had this marvelous Canadian sense of humor, which I share with him because I'm also Canadian. 
And Chris just didn't get it. He had this kind of vision. He had this kind of like had made Superman four as his kind of cause picture and any kind of digression from that was deemed kind of unwelcome. And her exact quote was Chris just didn't get it. So what you end up on the set of Superman four is people split into two different sides. The Fury uh, Kidder camp who thought that, you know, maybe maybe trying to gently subvert the film in, in whatever way would maybe cushion the, the fallout from a, a crappy script. And then I think you had Reeve, Connor, and Rosenthal, who I think were so convinced that it was going to be a winner in spite of everything. You know, that I think it was a very fractious set. I think if you were either on the original team that Reeve kind of chartered where, you know, it was it was about the cause of nuclear disarmament and they were really put their weight behind, you know, this script. And then you were on Margot who said like most everyone on set except for Chris Mark and Larry Connor knew that it was a bad script. Someone warned John Cryer that it's gonna be a bad movie and you know, Gene Hackman kinda of got the the sense early on because like early on with Sid, uh, Gene Hackman was actually quite, you know, I guess at one point Gene Hackman came into Sid's hotel room at some point to get uh, like a Tylenol or something like that. And they had a kind of a simpatico because when it happened, I guess they hung out for a bit and traded, I guess, whatever war stories. And then maybe about midway through the shoot, Gene began to kind of throw these little tantrums because he was aware that he was kind of like, like everyone else. I think he became aware that he was getting, stuck in a turkey when it's all said and done fury is able to finish the movie his cut of superman 4 was about two hours and 15 minutes long but that's when canon films had another idea and that other idea was superman 5 there's a brochure that exists um it says coming soon superman 5 and they have contrived this plan where it's like oh we're, we'll use the cut scenes from 4 and we'll we'll put them in five, and we'll do a whole other thing around it. And you know, of course, that didn't come to you know to fruition. It just shows you how bonkers and mad they were to think that cutting out half the footage to salvage to put into another film is just like that's the most cheapest sort of cost cutting there is. Somewhere around forty-five minutes was cut out of Superman Four with the idea that they'd have enough footage to get a head start on a fifth movie. It's really the kind of thing you expect out of canon. But it does bring up a good question. What was cut out of Superman 4? Sidney J. Fury, who had directed the film, had delivered a complete cut to Warner Brothers. I think probably early July, maybe June of 87. So that's, that's all the effects are completed to the standard of Superman 4. But there was a screen test that was held and apparently that uh, didn't go down well. And so they decided to cut the movie. So that's, that's essentially where we, they've cut out Nuclear Man 1, played by Clive Mantle, they've cut out a lot of Jeremy's stuff and they've cut out a number of action sequences that take part later in the movie because Lacey Warfield gets taken by Nuclear Man because he's fall, he falls in love with her because that kind of connects it to... Because Clark and Lacey go to the Metro Club and that's where they start dating and then... Well, not dating, but sort of have a dance and there's a bit of a thing between them. And Clive Mantle, as the other Nuclear Man, turns up and he kind of falls in love with Lacey. And then once he's destroyed by Superman... Once he's kind of brought back by Lex Luthor, he kind of there's the kind of memories there that Lace he still loves Lacey, and that's kind of part of the third act. So with all those scenes cut out, the whole film doesn't really kind of make much sense. And yeah, you know, Canon 
I suppose they probably still had the sort of lease from the Soul Cons, hadn't expired. So I thought, well, we're just going to make another Superman film. And so, July 24th, 1987, with its questionable script, cheap effects, and one-third of the movie missing, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, made its way into theaters. Greatest hope against the threat of nuclear war is Superman. The greatest threat to Superman... What are you up to? ...is Lex Luthor. He's created the ultimate weapon to destroy the Man of Steel. Is that adorable? Superman 4. Dude of Steel. Where are you going to get it? His most important adventure, The Quest for Peace. Rated PG. Starts Friday, July 24th at the UA Movie... It opened in fourth place at the box office with $5.6 million dollars. Finishing behind RoboCop, a re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and the Mark Harmon comedy Summer School. Superman 4 would spend two weeks in the top ten before disappearing with a little over $15 million. Significantly less than what Canon Films was hoping for. By the time the third weekend came around, where it would finish in 19th place, Canon was already rolling out their other big summer release, Masters of the Universe. Internationally, Superman 4 would bring in around $22 million, making it by far the lowest-grossing movie of the series. Critics not only panned it, but pointed out just how cheap-looking it was. Reeve would later say that Superman 4 was a catastrophe from start to finish, and that it was a huge blow to his career. Here's Reeve one year later, in 1988, talking about Superman 4 and trying to be as diplomatic as possible. To answer your question, Hollywood suffers from a very bad disease uh, called sequelitis, in which what the majors do is you take what grossed 100 million domestically last year and get the key ingredients back again and try to pump it up a few more times. Of course, the, the, the quality is a sliding scale of diminishing returns, and I think very rarely do you get a sequel that's an improvement on what, what went before it. Because yes. often what they'll do, uh, and I know this happened in the, in the case of, of a film that I worked on, uh, is is they will they will make all the promises above the line. They'll get the heavyweights, the the the, the top actors and and the director and whatever, and they'll say it's going to be wonderful. We're really going to go back to the original. It's going to be great. But then they don't give you the resources. They don't give you the the tools to go and work with below the line. And the audience now, I mean, listen, if the film is not spectacular, why pay the four pounds or the seven dollars or whatever? Just stay home and watch TV instead. Yeah, that was Superman four. Really? <laughs> I don't like to dump on, on previous employers, but it is, uh, it is true that, that uh, they, they want to reach their hand into the, into the till again and, and, and come up with a fistful of gold, and they don't always want to put out what it, what it takes to make the quality. Yes, I think that, that was true of that movie. Mm-hmm. Superman 4 was a disaster, no doubt. But what about the other movie in Reeves' two-picture deal? What about Street Smart? And they wanted him to do um, Superman 4, and he said he would do it if he could do a film that he wanted to do. And the film he wanted to do was uh, Street Smart. So he sent it to me. I liked it. And they made a deal, uh, and uh, of course uh, they made a terrible film of uh, Superman 4, but uh, that's not my business. You know, I, I kind of like what we did. This is Jerry Schatzberg. He was a fashion photographer and a nightclub owner before transitioning into directing movies in 1970. Schatzberg saw Al Pacino in an off-Broadway play and cast him in The Panic in Needle Park. 
It was Schatzberg's second film and Pacino's first leading role. Earlier, I told you how Cannon worked with a number of prominent filmmakers. You can put Jerry on that same list. Street Smart is a story about an unscrupulous reporter, played by Reeve, who fakes a story about a pimp. Then he gets involved with a real pimp and finds himself in deep trouble. The pimp was played by Morgan Freeman, and it forever changed his career. But I was uh, also so uh, elated with Morgan Freeman. What a surprise that was. Because I hadn't seen him at all. I didn't know who he was. I, I didn't know. I had never seen him on television. He did this children's program. Freeman was in his late 40s, and though he'd been acting for years, he hadn't broken through. He'd done bit parts here and there and played Malcolm X in a TV movie. But in 1987, he was still probably best remembered for this. Save your strength, Stanley, because here comes Easy Reader. Ah, top to bottom and left to right, reading stuff is out of sight. What's happening, Carmelita? Well, I have been talking to Stanley. And what I'm needing is something for reading. Stanley, baby! Sock it too old, easy. Oh, wait a minute. That's Freeman with my soulmate, Rita Moreno, from the 1970s children's show, Electra Company, playing Easy Reader, one of several characters he played on the show. Here's Christopher Reeve talking about Freeman to Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. It's a good example of just how unknown he was at the time. They've just played a clip from Street Smart, where Freeman is threatening Reeve. When they come back from the clip, Carson asks, who's the actor? I ran the picture in England uh, while I was still shooting Superman right. 4, and some, a couple people said to me, weren't you scared working with that pimp every day? <laughs> and and uh, they don't realize that's, that's Morgan Freeman. He's a classical actor. He's got grandchildren and tinkers with a sailboat on the weekends. Funny you how know? people relate yeah. to... Uh... And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful cast. Good. I wish you good luck with it. So despite having worked in the industry for well over a decade, Freeman was still basically unknown. He won the part by impressing Jerry Schatzberg in his audition. He came in, and we were talking about the neighborhood. We tried to find, you know, something to talk about. And in the middle of the conversation, he reached into his bag, uh, was by his uh, side of his chair, and he pulled out a banana. And he started peeling the banana and eating the banana. I thought that was outrageous for a guy coming for an interview and then eating a banana. And I was furious because he didn't even offer me a piece. (laughs) And not only did Jerry manage to get Morgan Freeman his breakout role with Street Smart, he also managed to get a music legend to work on the soundtrack, Miles Davis. Well, I've always loved Miles Davis, and I used to go down to Birdland and listen to Miles Davis anytime I could, you know, and I was uh, sort of a, known as a regular there, and Pee Wee Marquette, who was the uh, sort of major D, uh, would always give me a, a seat right under the uh, microphone where Miles was, and Miles, you know, he's not blind, and, and one day he was, he usually argued with his musicians, we didn't like what they did or something. One day he was arguing with his drummer, a wonderful drummer, but uh, he left the bandstand. And when he left the bandstand, uh, a friend of mine, Chico Hamilton, Chico Hamilton had come in, and he went to the bar, and Chico and I were great friends. And uh, I got up, I excused myself from my friend, and um, I went up, I just wanted to say hello to a friend. And by the time I got there, Miles had left and went to the bar, and uh, he and Chico were hugging each other. And uh, I uh, I waited until they finished, and uh, Chico then Chico and I did a little hugging, and uh, and then uh, Chico said, "Ask Miles, you know this, you know this guy." And Miles looked at me and he said, "Yeah, I know this motherfucker." 
<laughs> he didn't. We didn't know each other at all, but he'd see me every night sitting right under his nose. So he knew me from that. Then when I said, uh, you know, I always uh, was enamored uh, with his music, so I just took a chance. I uh, we called and I asked him if he'd come if he'd come and see the film. He came. He saw the film. He loved the film, and he said, "Okay, I'm going to have my nephew do a score." And lay down the track, and then I'll come in and, and lay down the uh, the trumpet part. And that's what happened. The shoot was, for the most part, problem-free. Jerry and Christopher Reeve got along really well. He was very uh, very conscientious about what he did, about his work. Uh, I'm not sure he's, he's the best actor in the world, but, uh, you know, that doesn't say anything. He did a great Superman, and I think he used to tell a story about his mother used to... Um, go to a beauty parlor and i think somebody uh, i may have known uh, went to the same beauty parlor but she uh, the mother would say well he's not a very good actor but you know and i think he did quite well for what he did i mean i can't think of anybody else that would have been a better superman that doesn't mean there weren't any issues jerry satsberg and christopher reeve both wanted to film in new york and filming in new york instead of for example, Toronto, and just pretending you're in New York, costs more money. One thing that should be clear about Canon Films is that they really weren't eager to shell out any extra money. This is Menachem Golan in 1986. He's on the phone complaining about Christopher Reeve and Jerry Schatzberg to an unnamed person. Keep in mind, the Street Smart shoot was before the Superman 4 shoot. Listen, did... Uh... I have a little problem uh, with Christopher Reeves that I want to discuss with you. Okay. Nobody shoots today in New York when they have a low-budget movie. And if they think that they have a big-budget movie here, there are, then I have a new story to tell them. Street Smart is comparatively a low-budget movie. So Jerry Schittsberg, the first thing he, sh- he does, he calls and complains under my belt, giving me under my belt and complains to Christopher Reeves. Half an hour later, almost midnight, Christopher Reeves calling me. What am I doing? A tata time, ruining the, the big... He, look, Chris is the star of the movie. Right. He should act in the movie. He can work on the script with the writer. I did everything they wanted. I sent the writer to New York. I, I did everything they wanted. He, his interference, that we have a kind of a, an X of, over our head from a star, uh, I don't like it. Honestly to God, I don't like it. He should... We are doing this movie... And he said, you know what he said to me? And that I thought is a, is a kind of a way uh, which I wouldn't like to hear it from nobody. He said, if you don't have another million and a half to do this movie in New York, how do I know that you have 30 million to do Superman? I mean, the way to talk to me like that, where do you take the money, he said. I said, from the bank, please, from the bank. You don't understand the world realities. What can I tell him? That he's only worth a dollar in Superman. Can I tell him that and I will be a, a guy who insults him? I did Street Smart because I wanted to please him, because I like the script, because I think it's a good project for us. But if we go bananas with the budget there, we will risk our ass. We don't work this way. This is from the BBC documentary about Canon Films called The Last Moguls in 1986. Let's look past the fact that Golan mispronounces Christopher Reeve and Jerry Schatzberg's names. Instead, let's focus on that Christopher Reeve was absolutely right to question whether or not Golan had $30 million to spend on Superman. He did not. As for Jerry, he holds no ill will towards Golan about whatever issues sprang up while making Street Smart. I guess we had uh, 
better words to pass uh, while we were making the film and um, all that. But he had his own opinions about things, which were different than my opinions. But uh, we argued them out. He was a, a terrible filmmaker, but he had good ideas, you know, and um, I appreciated that. He appreciated the work when, when he saw uh, Street Smart. He knew that he had a much better film than he thought he was going to have. And I, I kind of liked him, you know. Um, he, he didn't present any big problems to me. So Street Smart gets finished. Canon Films has a screening for it, and it goes well. The movie's good, but there's one problem that Christopher Reeve had with it. The, the problem with Chris was that uh, he didn't realize how good uh, Morgan was. And when he saw Morgan, he wanted me to change the film to uh, lessen uh, Morgan's part. And I wouldn't do it. And obviously they wouldn't do it because, you know, Morgan was just sensational. And uh, no matter what you do, uh, Morgan w- would probably be sensational. But I just didn't want to jeopardize the film by uh, doing the things. You know, I've run into that a number of times. Yes. According to Jerry Schatzberg, Christopher Reeve wanted to reduce Morgan Freeman's role because Freeman was too good. Chris saw the film and saw how powerful uh, Morgan was in the film. And I didn't do anything radical to make him. He was just a great actor. And he, with, with the material he had, he uh, was able to take hold of it and run. Cannon stood by Jerry and no cuts were made to Freeman's part. And on March 20th, 1987, Street Smart was released. Jonathan Fisher is a reporter with a deadline. Why is it I can't get anybody to talk to me out here? Look, I gotta go. He's about to get a dangerous idea. (laughs) But he'd better wise up fast. Because there's only one way to survive on the streets. I'll blow your brains out right now. I'm dead, you're dead. Christopher Reeve, Morgan Freeman, Street Smart. And it died a quick death at the box office, bringing in a little over a million dollars versus the six million it cost to make. Reeve felt Street Smart's failure was due to Canon doing a poor effort in releasing and promoting the movie. They may have released it badly, and that happens, you know, uh, studios don't always know the right uh, way to release a film or where to release it. And nobody knew Morgan. Nobody knew that Morgan was going to get these reviews that he got, you know. And they didn't, uh, I guess they didn't want to invest money in it at that time because they didn't know. While it was not a hit, critics liked it, and especially Morgan Freeman's performance as the menacing pimp Fast Black. At the end of the year, Freeman would wind up nominated for an Academy Award for Street Smart. And in early 1988 at the Shrine Auditorium, the stars of Moonstruck, Cher and Nicolas Cage, read off the lists of nominees. And the nominees are... Albert Brooks in Broadcast News. Morgan Freeman, Street Smart. Sean Connery in The Untouchables. Denzel Washington in Cry Freedom. Into Gardenia, Moonstruck. And then... Sean Connery in the Okay, so he doesn't win. Sean Connery wins the Oscar that year. Oh, no, Morgan was, uh, should have won that. People know Sean Connery, and they don't know Morgan Freeman. The film didn't make a zillion dollars, so they didn't get a chance to see him. So while he doesn't win an Oscar for Street Smart, 
or a Golden Globe, for which he was also nominated for, he does end up being on demand in Hollywood from then on. He would get four other Oscar nominations throughout his career, eventually winning for Million Dollar Baby in 2004. Christopher Reeve's two-picture deal with Canon Films can only be looked at as a loss for both parties involved. For Reeve, it was two more disappointments at the box office and the end of the one thing he would be known for, Superman. As if the failure of Superman 4 wasn't enough for Reeve, he would even end up getting sued over the script. There were a couple of writers who had written the story about uh, Superman solving the nuclear crisis. And since the script Christopher Reeve, apparently he'd read it and uh, said that, you know, he'd like it and he liked it and tried to take it around to the studio. And then they didn't hear anything back from him for a long time. And then the next thing they know, they're seeing in the trades that Christopher Reeve's making a new Superman movie. And it involves Superman, you know, taking all the nuclear missiles and throwing them into the sun. And they say, this sounds familiar. So they sued them. And uh, it was eventually... They were unable to prove that Christopher Reeve had ripped off their idea, and uh, the case was uh, dismissed. For Cannon, it was one of many things that would lead them on the path to no longer existing. It was a great opportunity squandered. This was the one place they should have sunk their money into. I do wonder, though, if all the missing footage was put back into Superman 4, would it make a difference? Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good question. Um, I, I think it would be a kind of so-so kind of movie. I think, I, I think it would have, I think it certainly would have done better at the time um, because the word of mouth probably wouldn't have killed it so quickly. Um, but I, I think in terms of the visual effects, it still would be, still would have been a disappointment to the fans. Um, but uh, I, I think Margot Kidder had said that you can't make a, a good movie out of a bad script. And that's what she always felt. Um, I mean, Christopher Reeve kind of knew problems were, you know, had had, a, had arisen on the production very early on, and he sort of pulled John Cryer aside and said, "This movie's a disaster. It's a mess." And John's like, "Oh God, you know," because everyone's kind of excited to be in Superman, another Superman film, and it, you know, it wouldn't have happened without Chris because he had pulled together, you know, Gene Hackman and Margot Kidder and, and so forth, and all the other and Mark McClure, all that lot. Um, but yeah, I, there was a kind of biz- interesting. Um, recently, because Warner Archives, who put out sort of specialist kind of you know stuff on their label, they put out a three-hour cut of Superman that was you know that was shown on TV years ago, and they put it out on Blu-ray. It's in widescreen. It's, it's great. Um, it's definitely worth watching. Uh, apparently, Warner's have found loads more Superman stuff, and the rumor is that they'd found the complete cut of Superman Four. Um, so. You know, in the coming months or maybe year, we may see something pop up finally to see the, the proper finished version. Maybe it's time we got hashtag release the fury cut to start trending. This deal wasn't all bad, though. There are some silver linings in it. For example, not everything in Superman 4 is bad. Its best selling point really is the soundtrack by Alexander Courage, um, who was best friends with John Williams. You know, John Williams also provided a couple of themes for Superman 4. But um, Alexander Courage was John Williams' orchestrator, so he knew how to copy John Williams' style perfectly. That's, that's the best, probably the best thing about the movie. And we did get one good movie out of the deal. I think the good thing that came out of Superman 4 is Street Smart. That is a really great film, I think, and, and certainly gave Morgan Freeman a career. 
And that movie only happened because he'd made the deal that they would finance that if he did Superman 4. You know, no matter what we think about Superman 4, we can thank Superman 4 for giving us Street Smart. And Morgan Freeman, really. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry. This episode was written and edited by me, Dan Delgado, and presented by Movie Maker. Visit MovieMaker.com for more great podcasts, articles, and information about movies. If you're a movie fan or a movie maker yourself, there's something for you at MovieMaker.com. There's also a great newsletter you can sign up for. It's good. Seriously. Special thanks to my guests, Oliver Harper, Bruce Chevalli, Daniel Kramer, and Jerry Schatzberg. Check the show notes for articles and other sources used for this episode. And definitely check out Oliver Harper's documentary on YouTube, Superman 4, The Man of Glass and Steel. There'll also be a link to that in the show notes as well. If you want to get in touch, you certainly can. On Twitter, it's at TheIndustry13. On Facebook, it's TheIndustryPod. On Instagram, it's Industry underscore Podcast. Or if you want to be more direct, you can just send me an email. That's dan at moviemaker.com. You can also rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts, which is really just sort of a nice thing to do. It helps the show gain some visibility, and it also makes me feel good inside. There's over a million podcasts out there, so we could use the help. If you've already done it, and I know a few of you have, then thank you. I do appreciate it. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon with another lesser-known story of the things that went on in the industry. And release the fury cut.